Hey folks, my name is Andy Sido, and you're listening to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. My guest is Asheville, North Carolina-based DJ Bruce Swan. Welcome, welcome. As I'm doing this monologue, I don't uh, remember how I've ordered these episodes, but we're somewhere around episode 90, which is awesome. Just 10 away from triple digits. Quick thanks to our sponsors, Patrick at PQ Mastering. Patrick puts the finishing touches on this podcast, and for any audio or restoration needs, visit pqmastering.com. Also, Narrator Music. For simple and affordable licensing for sync, visit narratorrf.com. If you'd like to inquire about sponsorship, shoot me an email at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com or music S-Y-D-O-W, at gmail.com. I'm now on Patreon at patreon.com slash Sitto. I put up early and exclusive content both from this podcast and uh, stuff I do in my music career, um, early releases, production videos, whatever it might be, and you can join that for as little as $3 a month. If you'd like to support this podcast in a non-monetary way, give it a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It just takes a second and is very much appreciated. Now on to my guest today, Bruce Swan. I first met Bruce uh, back at the end of August this past summer. I was on my Dirty 30 baseball tour, and I had a day off, and I've always wanted to see Asheville. So uh, I, I drove from Nashville to Asheville. On my day off, I went and saw an Asheville tourist game, and I had been introduced to Louise Baker, who runs Baker Booking in Asheville, a couple months prior to that. And um, we'd had a phone conversation. So when I was in town, I called her and said, hey, I'm going to a ball game. I'm in town. And she said, well, meet me at the guitar bar afterwards. And so I went to the guitar bar after the game. Great bar, by the way. It's a locals bar. There's guitars everywhere. There's music going on all the time. It it was very cool. Um, I, I, I went there and I met Luis and Bruce. And we had a great time. And then I ended up crashing with them. They let me stay with them that night. I'm very grateful. Um, but Bruce went down to Asheville uh, to visit from Connecticut to visit Luis right as the pandemic was getting started. And um, he stayed and he's still there. So he's he's officially moved to Asheville. And um, that's where he, where he calls home at the moment. So uh, he got a late start to being on air He started after a curious return to college at age 50 when he found out that he didn't actually finish. More on that uh, in the interview. But he saw the college radio station WHCS at Hunter College in New York, New York, and he went in and applied, and that was his first time going on the air. He spent 10 years at WPKN Independent Radio in Bridgeport, Connecticut, 89.5 FM. His last show there was on July 30th of 2021, and he spent about seven years at uh, WRFR Community Radio in Rockland, Maine, 93.3, with two Sunday shows. His new and current radio station is WSFM, 103.3 Asheville, North Carolina, Independent Community, uh, Community Radio, excuse me, and that is an LP station. There's going to be a quiz on this later, so listen carefully to the interview and find out what LP means if you don't know. I didn't know. 
Before settling in Asheville, Bruce was out 100-plus nights a year catching gigs, was active in the regional and international Folk Alliance gatherings, was interacting with industry people, musicians, presenters, and fellow DJs. In June of 2020, uh, Bruce and Luis began a weekly streamed showcase series presenting artists from their homes, recording studios, or wherever they are. And this comes to the listener in a series called Music My Mother Would Not Like. The name of the show is a bit of a tongue-in-cheek homage to his mother, who has never heard him on the radio. The series has presented over 70 shows to over 5,000 viewers and over 270 acts since inception. I got to be on the show back in October, and it was a lot of fun. The show streams on Tuesday nights, and uh, there's there's links in the show notes to, to all the different shows that Bruce does, and I've also included a link uh, to Baker Booking as well. Bruce is an interesting guy. He's got a lot of stories about radio, about life. We had a great time chatting together. Let's jump in. Bruce, thanks for joining me. Thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure. I've looked at the roster of some of the people you've had the uh, the pleasure of chatting with, and I I hope I do okay. You're going to do great. You're going to do great. And it's, and it's a... Uh, it's a fun roster. I look back and I uh, think, man, it's been a it's been a fun run. You know, my goal at the beginning was to get to a hundred episodes, and we're getting close to that now. This okay, is, you'll be you'll be like ninety or something. <laughs> I feel like it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's old man humor, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I dish um, that. I serve that one up for you. I think. <laughs> So now I know you're you're sitting in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, I, I think I recognize your office there, and I think it's important to mention off the bat that you let me crash in that office this summer when I was on the road. So so thank you. Um, you're welcome. And you're welcome. Uh, how are you liking Asheville so far? You you've just come out recently. Yeah, you know I I'm digging it, and um, it's kind of weird. I came here typically for short weekends, and then one summer I spent the whole summer. I, I teach, uh, I did teach chess in the public schools, and so there were no programs in the summer. And um, I was invited to to spend the summer here with Louise, so I did, and I worked at, at ISIS and and got sort of a feel for the city. Had my own car here, and I was sort of traveling around a little bit. But coming back during pandemic, I came down here for a three day weekend in March of 2020 and um, have been here really more or less all ever since. So I came down for a three-day weekend, never really left. It's a bit of a Gilligan's Island um, three-day weekend. But I'm digging it. You know, the music scene is quite a bit different. It's a little bit more compressed than, than where I was in Fairfield, although Fairfield was hop, skip, and a jump from New York City, Boston, Hartford, some great, great music scenes. But the scene here in Asheville is pretty dynamic. Um, ranging from local talent to uh, national touring acts, international acts. So in short, yeah, I'm, I'm happy here. I, I think it's an interesting place to live. Are you, are you here to stay? Or are you there to stay? I, I think for the moment, yes, I am here to stay. I've changed my driver's license. My car is down here. Um, I think most of the things <laughs> that I call my own are here. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm here to stay. This is this is where I live, uh, and and I'm I'm happy about it. It's it's an interesting transition. You know, if you'd said, would you ever move to North Carolina? I would say probably not. Probably not part of my long term future goals. But things work out for reasons, and um, 
supposedly there are no coincidences, so I'm I'm here for the long haul. Yeah, yeah, and I I'd like to talk about your DJing career and all the stuff you've done in the industry. But one thing I wanted to jump into first is your show, Music My Mother Would Not Like, um, because that's something that you started. I, I mean, the, we've I've talked about this with every guest over the last almost two years. Is what have you been doing during the pandemic? Um, and and everybody has a different answer about how they've been making ends meet, or um, or maybe not, maybe just hanging out and waiting it out. You started a remote show where you could have a variety of guests on at the same time. Um, I mean, pretty pretty close. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you've been doing that weekly. Talk about that show a little bit and how that came about. Sure, thanks. Good question. Um, it goes, and maybe we'll get to this in a bit. But the name of the program, "Music My Mother Would Not Like," stems from the radio show that I hosted in Bridgeport, Connecticut, on WPKN when the pandemic started. I, like a lot of people, thought it was not a hoax. I mean, there was no, by no stretch of the imagination do I want to suggest that I didn't think that this was going on. But I really didn't think that the, the, the shelf life was going to be anything more than an inconvenience for five or six days, and then it would be business as usual, and we'd find something else to attract our attention on the news and the media. And after about six weeks, eight weeks, it was pretty clear that this was here to stay. Louise and I were walking one Saturday afternoon in the um, Arboretum, and I'm not an outdoors guy, so took a bottle of water, put on my walking shoes, and we went to the Arboretum. And we began talking about how we were missing all the conferences that were scheduled, all the regional folk alliance conferences, um, not sort of the regional assemblies of artists, presenters, industry folk gathering for three-day conferences of lots and lots of music and lots of great business and and hugging old friends. And also the festival circuit had really been, it was clear that it had come to an abrupt halt. It was not going to happen. Right. So between no festivals, no conferences in short, um, missing friends and missing uh, acquaintances and new music and just the interaction of people within the industry, um, was was too much we thought well what can we do what can we do to help ourselves um bridge the gap financially what can we do to help musicians bridge their gaps financially and how can we bring new music to people because i was while i was doing my radio remotely i wasn't doing any live radio so it really sort of felt like a bit of a disconnect Mm. um and this whole thing came together we sent out we came back to the apartment and i said make a list of people that you think would be suitable for this that we would love to have that you think we could get I mean, let's not let's not just you know let's not go over the top let's let's keep this as what could be attainable she made her list i made my list we came up with about 60 people and about 30 people were overlapping so we knew we were on to something we sent a, a note out to we assembled the list got all the email addresses um compiled a a mass email, sent it out first thing Monday morning at 12 noon. By five o'clock that night, and we we only said we're gonna do this for five weeks. So we're looking for maybe 30 or six or 35 artists, 30 artists. And um, by six or seven o'clock that night, I think we'd we'd filled 80% of the slots. But within two days, um, I sent a note out saying, did you miss the email or are you just not interested? Let me know and I won't bother you. And by the end of the week, we already had a waiting list that was one and a half times deep. So it, it came together pretty quickly. 
pretty dynamically. And then we realized, oh, oh no, what have we gotten ourselves into? We don't know how to do this. We have no idea. Fortunately for the Folk Alliance region Midwest, the farm group had been doing these tech talks throughout the, uh, the pandemic and teaching people how to take advantage of different aspects of technology, be it StreamYard, Zoom, um, Yard, um, what am I thinking of? Uh, anyway, many different platforms and different different ways of using your time to connect. So we paid attention to this. We started the Zoom shows and the first couple ones were, were good shows, but they were kind of, I was kind of nervous. It was kind of up and down. We had to build the audience. So in short, um, after a year and a half since June 30th, 2020, we have produced 73 concerts at the time of, of our conversation, presented 282 artists to well over 5,000 people and um, have taken in probably close to $75,000 that has been distributed to artists and um, our assistant and to ourselves. And I'm, I'm pretty proud of the project. So that's the, I guess that's the, the buck 95 answer to, uh, to the question. That's a lot of money you've gotten out to artists. That's, that's a, a really cool thing. And how do you deal with I know I, I I did one of uh, your guys' showcases mm -hmm. that you did for a regional folk alliance, and I had a microphone issue. And um, and I think I always have my stuff is set up, and I'm using it all the time, and, and we went live, and, and I was like, what, there's a microphone issue? Oh, geez. Um, how do you deal with that? Even with artists who use their equipment all the time, you're live on this show, and... Um, you've got three different acts or four different acts and, uh, and stuff happens. How do you deal with that on the fly? Yeah. You know, we, we do a sound check. We run the, the concert like a venue and I've, I've treated myself as a venue and, and try to remain, um, professional. So we do a sound check at six o'clock the evening of the show. The reason for that is that way we get to see everybody. We make sure that they've got good connectivity. Remember, we're in four different locations, sometimes four different time zones, um, sometimes different countries. So it, lots of things that can go wrong do go wrong. And typically, they're going to happen during sound check. They're going to happen because this is the first moment we're all together. We're able to see what's going on. We're able to hear what's going on. On Zoom, we don't have any control over the individual artist's connectivity, their microphone settings. After 70 concerts plus, we've seen a lot of things. So yeah. if there's a mishap, it's going to be on, most likely on the artist's end. Um, we can see from the bars of, of Zoom, we can tell what kind of connectivity we've got. So if we're into the yellow, we know we've got some not so good stuff. So we try to get a lot of stuff out of the way. But on the fly, sure, things happen. But it's no different than any other venue. And you're hoping that you can cure the problem quickly. And sometimes, and it's, I think this has happened twice, maybe three times, where the connectivity was just bad. We lost an artist one time. Uh, a couple of times we we should have stopped the show. We should have said let's do this let's arrest your problems this is what we're hearing see if you can fix it let's move on to the next artist and we'll take it from there we'll just keep the show moving um but but it's it's awkward fortunately we've de developed a very patient and understanding crowd and you just do the best you can i mean stuff happens it's no different than busting a guitar string on stage you know mm -hmm. do you fall apart do you grab another guitar? Do you make light of it? Um, is your other guitar tuned? Hopefully in the tuning that you need for that for the next song or the current song, but you just move forward. And I think yeah. that the big thing is the sound check. I think that 
knowing where the gremlins can hide out in in each of the different platforms is really helpful but it's all from experience and having been in radio for a long time stuff happens and yeah. you, you should if you're if you're counting on one platform count on it failing you know count on something going wrong all the time and the one time you forget to count on it it's probably when it's going to happen um yeah but yeah you know stuff happens it's just a matter of trying to figure out what it is how to correct it do it calmly and patiently and i think remaining calm is probably the biggest piece of the puzzle to be able to say let's just fix this and not yeah. we've got a problem let's fix the problem let's not dwell on whose fault it is to the mm -hmm. extent we can identify what's going on and and typically it's it's simple thing like a setting or um zoom didn't allow would allow you for to change original sound to unoriginal sound or turn it on turn it off and some people would get the settings backwards so they turn off their computer or they're working from a telephone um it's just i don't know it's it's no different than being on your side of the stage when something goes wrong how do you deal with it you just sort of take a breath smile and and fix it and and not focus so much on it and then just get on with it i'm usually okay unless something goes wrong after i've told my six jokes <laughs> yeah. having the seventh one's always a favor <laughs> yeah yeah that's right and I know this. You've been doing plenty of uh, of radio stuff and live on air stuff for for a long time. But this whole idea of streaming and getting multiple artists together sort of came to prominence uh, when COVID happened. A lot of people have, you know, did it for a little while and stopped doing it. Mm -hmm. um, you've continued to do this thing, and I know we're entering another time of a lot of things getting canceled, but. Um, what do you see happening with this show um, in the future? Are you going to keep on doing it uh, at this rate, even maybe two two years from now? Maybe you can't see that far ahead, but two years from now when everybody's out, um, are you still going to be doing this uh, this concept? Well, yeah, for a couple of reasons. There's no end date in sight for us. Yeah. There will be a time right. when anybody and everybody can get to a show because we will achieve herd immunity. Um, the COVID pandemic will be over, uh, like the Spanish flu of the early 20s, 1920s. There, there is an end date in sight. There's a couple of things that appealed to me. We've always done the show on Tuesday nights, and I felt that the platform lends itself to singer-songwriters, which is something that I gravitate towards. So you've got one person, maybe two people. They're probably in the same location. They're they're probably in the same cohort or, or pod or whatever but they may be touring musicians together and i thought okay well tuesday night is typically a lull there's not much yeah. work that, there's not many stuff that you can go see on a tuesday night um with certain exceptions many times you'll get a, a band that's looking for just another date to keep the machine moving forward they've got anchor dates in two major cities they're looking for something in between just to sort of keep the revenue stream flowing in it's the music is business and and that i think is a big part of it. You, you need to understand that there are costs associated with putting the key in the door at your favorite venue yeah so presenters those that are are presenting musicians want the greatest number of seats in the seats that's goal number one always putting the best talent available ensures a good reputation as a venue but job one seats in the seats 
Going back to your question, Tuesday nights are often a lull for most mm. singer-songwriters. It's a night where they either head back home, they regroup, they do laundry, um, they get a little bit deeper in their email, they, they inventory their merch, or they just go home. And so we thought, of, okay, let's look at this as a, a Calistoga wagon, for example. Most artists go out, go one way or the other, and then work their way home. And, and hopefully the, the radius clauses don't conflict, and they have no trouble finding other gigs as they work their way back home. Maybe they go out wednesday morning and get to their first gig on thursday and do work thursday friday saturday sunday if they're lucky and head back monday tuesday to start the process all over again fix the gear that's busted get new batteries get new strings do whatever they got to do but i thought okay if we can keep an artist out longer they can expand that sphere of influence that that periphery they can go a little bit further out take the spoke a little bit further, get a larger radius, and then work their way back home, um, or just simply stay out on the road that much longer. So mm. I thought that that was important. We also knew that Tuesday nights was, was sort of a lull in the business. And the other part of it is that much of the singer-songwriting community, the performer community, is working in coffee house situations that may do one concert a month or a house concert series, one concert a month or once every two or three weeks. Um, and much of their audience is aging. As you age, it becomes more and more difficult and unpleasant to drive at night. People haven't been driving at night for a while. Let's see if we can't bring quality entertainment to people during the week. So mm. that was really the impetus. The short answer is that there is no end date in sight. There will become a t there will come a time um, where the the cost benefit doesn't work. We're not able to bring in enough people to bring in enough revenue to make it worthwhile for the artists, and then then it becomes um, sort of a sinking ship. You know, how much more, how much water can you pump out? How much water are you taking in? How many people are attending? Um, is this still a good use of time for the artists? We also yeah. present to invite many presenters, those that buy talent, and mm. it saves them a, a trip or saves them work. They're able to see what an artist looks like when they perform. Live performance, even in streamed, is very different than um, than a record. You know, for yeah. example, you may bring in some talent to enhance your record of projects that you're working on. You may bring in some studio musicians. Opportunity may crisscross. A friend may be coming through and say, "Hey, I'll, I'll sit in for a little bit." But you're not necessarily going to tour with that. So, live performance is always a little bit different than the record. I think it's a little bit more exciting than the record in most cases. But here's an opportunity to see the stripped down version of an artist um, in their home and see two or three of them or three or four of them on any given night without having to leave your home. So that's, mm. that's really the impetus of why we put it together, why it's, I think it will continue to work. And sure, there's lots of competition. Um, we have enjoyed a really great built-in audience and we share in the marketing, Andy, that's, that's the other part of it. The artists are expected to, to help bring in their crowd, which expands right. the audience. And hopefully we bring some of them back. We have some people that have come in for one artist and they never come back others say wow this is really trippy i'm really glad i got turned on to this and they come back with um great consistency or regular frequency and they contribute to to the donation pool it's a free concert uh free to register and we, we're grateful for the donations and that's where the money has come from it's not ticketed so yeah. it, everything has been um i don't want to say catch as catch can but the, the marketing has, has been pretty aggressive and pretty straightforward and a lot of work. I mean, it's we run it like a venue. And mm. I don't know that we, we have the capacity to take on, on more work, but uh, I absolutely love it. You were talking about uh, costs and revenue. 
throughout your career in radio and in all the different stations you've been on, how do you typically measure uh, success, if you will? I, I know, um, well, even with the podcast, like I had a long period of time where I didn't look at the numbers every week. I said, hey, I'm just doing this um, right now as a passion project to get it off the ground. And I can't look at the numbers mm-hmm. because sometimes you spend 10 hours working and editing and uh, and uh, 35 people listen to it. Other times over a thousand people listen to it. But I mean, it's it can be tricky uh, to base success off of numbers. It can be tricky to base success strictly financially. How do you base the, the success of the show? And not just this show, but just in general. I think um, when you're doing live radio, the indicators can be the, the social activity that you hear or you watch on, on Facebook as you're doing your broadcast or how often the lights light up or how often the general manager comes in. So I got somebody on the phone who wants to talk to you. That's usually a good indicator. Um, and a lot of it is you just don't know. You do a great interview and you don't know who's listening, but you're, you're at a concert, you're talking to somebody and the person next to you says, um, excuse me, but are you the guy on the radio? So it was a lot of us on the radio. I don't know. Maybe. Um, I said, no, no, no. You did the interview with, with, with the artist this evening and that's why I'm here. That is probably the biggest measure of success where someone else hears your work and said, yeah, I've heard your show. I was mm-hmm. at a, a fundraiser one time and a guy said, oh yeah, I listened to your show. And I said, come on, it's, it's okay. You don't have to be polite. And he said, no, you played this, 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 this. And I thought, whoa, here's a real radio head who's really digging what they're hearing. Radio for me was always a companion. Mm. You trusted the jocks that you brought into your bedroom, your living room, into your car, into your workspace, and you trusted their company, that what they were going to present was was of high quality. And, and so I've always tried to emulate that. The question, though, was how do you measure the success? I think you measure it by being self-critical. You know, did you do the best show you possibly could? Did you get lazy and just play two tracks in a row? The two tracks in a row really, was that really what you set out to do? A day of back and forth, old and new, borrowed and blue from the same artist. Um, Did you do a day of covers? You know, we are on the air as community radio hosts, sometimes once a week, sometimes once a month. I knew a guy who had the fifth Saturday of every month. Now, Mm. the fifth Saturday might happen five times a year, maybe. Sometimes a minimum of three, but sometimes as many as five Uh per year. Um, I don't know how he measures success. When I had my show on the second, fourth, and fifth Friday, I measured it by the um, the types of acts that I could bring into the studio. Was I was I bringing in the best act that was playing in town that night? Uh, would they do a radio interview with me live? That was really important to me. Um, was my reputation strong enough to to bring in people and not make them feel uh, or worry about being made? To feel uncomfortable was it going to be a negative experience and you just don't know with a live performance um yeah. so I, I would say the metrics are important most community radio stations don't subscribe to to the indicators of performance the the various um uh, nielsen ratings of television if you will those are yeah. those are expensive services so you can you try to gauge by what you think is your your market segment is it is it supported by the amount of revenue you're bringing in during your fund drives is it consistent the radio station i worked at in connecticut had a potential fcc circle the radius of what the fcc says your signal should reach was a million and a half men women and children million and a half listeners and so 
yeah, but I mean, it's not realistic. I mean, that, that's what everybody should have been bringing in that had the same FCC footprint, this, that, that their antenna covered the same distance, they had the same wattage, et cetera, et cetera. But we certainly didn't bring in a million and a half listeners at any given moment, maybe 5,000, 6,000, 10,000. You, you just don't know. Community mm -hmm. radio is, is really, um, I think it's wonderful. I think it can be self-serving for the jocks, but I think for the most part, it's wonderful. It's an opportunity for local people to develop an audience and, um, expand their talents and their in interests. So for me, it's been an ongoing journey. It started 12 years ago, serendipitously. And uh, uh, yeah, sorry. Oh, I, I want to talk about how that started. That was actually going to be my next question. But you brought up community radio. Mm -hmm. And uh, you see a lot of different radio terms get thrown around. There's independent radio, there's community radio. I think those can be the same. Sometimes they can be. Um, I think a lot of times community radio is the lower power stations, the ones that have the LP at the end of their, their call sign. Okay. Meaning low power. They go out at a hundred Watts. They have different licensing requirements. Um, they pay a lot less money in taxes and fees and licensing fees, et cetera. Different restrictions are put on them. It's a smaller because if it's only going out at a hundred Watts that they're, 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 footprint their radio footprint is, is significantly smaller but these people um i think are on a mission and that's what the radio station here in Asheville is all about it's about bringing community it's about being important to that which falls into your your circumference your radius of of where you can broadcast to um simply put the the, the greater the more watts you have the greater your potential radius is and so they're mm. most large commercial radio stations are 50,000, 10,000 watts, and a low power radio station will go out at 100 watts. Um, independent radio stations are ones that are not owned by networks, they're probably self-owned or maybe owned by one or two individuals, and they determine the broadcasting, whatever the, whatever the philosophy is of, this, of the station. But they're independent, and they can buy and sell some canned broadcasting, or they do all their own work. Um, they're not an affiliate of the NPR, National Public Radio, mm. which has um, bought up or allowed their their programming to be bought up by independent radio stations. Um, so you'll hear this is an NPR station. This is part of the NPR network. Right. WPKN was loosely affiliated with um, Pacifica, as well as a couple of other radio stations. I think they have 10 or 15 radio stations now in the United States. But independent is just that you you determine the type of programming that you want um hopefully you're meeting the needs of your listening community it's in it's inconsistent it's catch as catch can it's eclectic um it's often very passionate and uh, i think it's in it, it can be wonderfully informative and it can be great company for people that are alone not everybody has a television set not everybody wants one um, yeah I was at a fundraiser one time, and it was a record sale. A woman came in and said, I, I, is there something wrong with the station? And I said, no, everything's fine. We, we bought a new antenna. That, that installation's happening. You can catch it online. I'm sorry. Would you like to come in and say hello to some people? She said, no, I just want to make sure everything was okay. And she, she turned on her. She said, I, I said, you can listen to it online. She said, I, I, I don't have a computer. Wow. This was her, this was her community. This was what... Um, she elected to bring into her living room that made her feel um, not alone. And it was, it was very moving because it was the, the weather was just a nice spring day, but it was still cold. And yeah. her, she walked to the radios to, to where we were um, and, and asked if everything was okay. 
Yeah. Wow. Just that that's got to make you feel good. Um, it, it does. And you know that you're, you're not alone. If you've ever heard the, um, the recitation by Mike Agronoff called the Ballad of the Sandman, it's not a true story, but it's a, it's a pickup of a couple of close enough and based on a couple of radio personalities, but it's a story of a guy who goes to college. He, he somehow gets interested in radio and he begins hanging out at the radio station, probably emptying the trash barrels or fetching coffee or doing something. And he takes a liking to all the radio jocks and gets to know them. And he winds up sitting in a couple of times and then he goes off to college and he gets on college radio. And it's just a, it's a beautiful story. And whenever I played, especially late at night, the phone would ring. And um, <clears throat> it was usually somebody saying, yeah, I did, I did college radio and thanks for playing that and it really hit home. And you can tell they're choked up, you know, and it's, and it's, a, it's a 13 minute song. And I usually play it once or twice a year, the Ballad of the Sandman. Um, it, okay. it, it speaks to a lot. Uh, and I think that that is the essence of community radio. It's interesting how you talk about it too, um, how you're letting people, people are letting you in to their living room, to their bedroom, to their, to their vehicle. And when you say it like that, it's, it's, it makes it very intimate. Mm -hmm. Um, so when you, when you go on, I mean, do you feel some, are, are you picturing that? Are you picturing people listening in their living room or their car? I mean, what's that experience like for you? Um, yeah, it, it is, it is deeply intimate and, but there's a lot of moving parts in radio. Um, sometimes you've got two turntables, sometimes you've got two CD players, sometimes you're working off your laptop, sometimes you're trying to communicate with people um, that either are going to come into the studio and do an interview, they're running late, you're texting them back and forth, or you're communicating with people that are saying, oh, I dig that song, who is it by? Um, so there's a lot of moving parts, but I do feel that it's a responsibility that... Um, you know, I never want to make anybody feel uncomfortable with the musical selection. Um, I never want to feel make a guest in the station feel uncomfortable that that they're they're there for my entertainment or my amusement to make them feel stupid or ask them a stupid question or an invasive question. Um, you were kind at the beginning of the interview. You said, is there anything you don't want to talk about? Because I don't want to bring that up. And, yeah. I, and I appreciate that. And I do the same thing. Is there anything you would like to talk about? Because we can craft a question around that. That's important. Is there anything you don't want to talk about? I'm not interested in um, unfortunate circumstances that people have had. Life yeah. is what happens to all of us. And I think that I would like to think that my audience is not interested in that either. Or if they are, they're going to find it from somebody else. So they can do their own research. I'm not interested in who you used to be married to, um, why you're no longer married, uh, a misunderstanding between you and a law enforcement official over some controlled substances. No, that's really not that interesting. Unless you write a song about it, and then then it's fair game. You put it out there. Let's yeah. let's chat about it. <laughs> right. You wrote right. the song, man. Not me. You wrote so, the song. <laughs> you wrote it. Um, but I, I think. There is that sense of responsibility, so I think it it can't be cavalier. You cannot just um, assume you have an audience. You've got to build an audience, and you can't see them. Um, you may hear from them. They may say, I was out of town for a while. Sorry, I missed the show. Or they may say, I caught your show in the archives. Um, it's it's kind of heady, you know. Uh, I, I can't. I can't understate that. Um, mm. But I think once you get caught up in it, and if you think that you're bigger than either the station or the program or the music or your guest, 
it's it's not a it's not a good thing for anybody, and I think it's a a, a path to um, to disaster. It's I, I never try to be bigger than what I'm trying to accomplish. Yeah, yeah. Now I know when I'm putting out records, I'll talk to uh, I'll talk to somebody who's going to help out with radio stuff, and they say, okay, I listen to the record, and we need to send this to non-com Americana and uh, and college radio. Mm-hmm. Do those sometimes? So are those also under the umbrella a lot of times of of community radio or independent radio? Yeah, a lot of them do fall into it because a lot of us on community radio are playing without a set list or a, um, a program list. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is that a rotation list. That's the word I was looking for. A lot of radio stations say these are the songs that are important to us that will standardize us to the listeners that um, will let them know what our radio station is about. These radios, these 10 songs will be played in heavy rotation. Now that may mean somewhere between once an hour, once a day, five times a week, 10 times a week, whatever. We keep the logs, we'll keep track of how often we play this song and that will standardize the radio station. And I get that. I really dig the independence I have. Um, Sometimes I feel it would be kind of a, a good not constraint, but definition of boundary. We'll say we're going to play these 10 songs, so play two of them over the course of three hours. It's not that big a deal. Yeah. So the, the music will come into the station. Um, usually you have a program director and a music director, and the program director say, we want you to play these songs. These are the requirements. If you want a job here, if you want to be on the air here, this is these are our guidelines. These are our constraints. Um, anything in heavy rotation, try to play one or two of them over the course of your daily show. Yeah. Or the the music director may say, hey, I've listened to your show a couple of times. I think you might really dig this artist. And so they'll hand you a stack of records. Um, some of the people you've mentioned are will get to know you as you being me as a as a radio programmer that I often play these this particular artist or music that falls into this genre. Um, I know you typically dig protest songs. This is very Phil Oaks-esque. I think you'll enjoy it. And that's the end of it, you know, or they may call you back in a month or two and say, were you able to work one of these songs into your rotation? I don't think they ever wish to to um, try to shove something down your throat or, or hassle, you know, why didn't you play this or whatever. Um, those songs, will, those albums will sometimes come into the radio station. They'll come into the new music section. They'll come into the folk section, whatever they're supposed to, whatever genre they will fall into, depending on each each station. Mm. And I think it's, it's a great way of um, presenting music. It's... It's a fee to the artists, and we recognize that. They have to pay somebody to help get their music into at least the eyes or hands of a programmer, radio disc jockey or uh, personality. So there's a cost associated with it, and there's a cost associated with you manufacturing the records and the mailing and, and the distribution, and it's a lot of cost. But it does enable us to hear some music that may not cross our radar immediately, might not cross it until someone else has played it 20, 30 times. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that, I think that it does serve a purpose. Community radio will often not play the hits. They will often play the non-singles. And I think that that is interesting as well. Um, I interviewed an artist a couple of weeks ago and the, the song that I liked the best on the record was not one of the singles that she wanted to make. I said, I, I said, why didn't this make it as a single? So it's, I think it's the best song on the record and she said really i said yeah 
I love it. It's it's different from the others, but I, I really, this is my favorite song. And I wasn't able to play it until after the record was released because it was not on one of the early singles. I wore it out at home, but I couldn't play it on the air until it was okay to do so. so. But so if you were working for Clear Channel, say, mm -hmm. you wouldn't have the freedom to play that other song when the record came out, right? Would you Would you have to play the hit or what they what they tell you? Yeah, I think a lot of these larger um, corporate stations that tend to be in the center of the dial or at the top end of the dial, they are um, expensive businesses to operate. So they've got revenue that they've got to come in. They've got to bring in advertising dollars. They have to have listeners. They have to be playing the, the songs that most people are looking for. And so perhaps their audience is larger, perhaps it's less discriminating, perhaps they're just putting on music while they're at work and they just want to hear some stuff that's that's familiar. I, I have never worked for a large corporation, so I can only speculate what their experience is like. And mm. I have often said that, you know, what what I get to do, they don't get to do, and what they get, I don't get. Meaning a yeah. lot of them have to play what they want to what they're told to play. They have to hit their marks. They have to get, make sure that the commercials come on at the right time. Some of them are not even allowed to, to touch records. That's the job of the engineer. They are the voice behind the microphone, and that's where their responsibilities start and stop, and they better hit their marks on time. Mm. So that's one segment of it. But they get paid, and us in community radio are 99 out of 100 times volunteer people that are passionate about what they do. So the grass, I guess, is always greener on the other side. Um, I don't know. I'd like I'd like to have an opportunity to have some firsthand experience and be able to report yeah. back to you what the what the the real story is. I heard an interview one time with Dave Herman, the late the late Dave Herman, and he was asked why do you, do you, do you not like you know what do you hate being told what to play? And his answer was um, I thought very good. He said you know there's a lot of great music out there, and I, I I'm fearful that I might not play. Um, what the audience is looking for or what the audience is going to expect or maybe I play the song too often and it needs a better rotation or a different rotation. So I think, you know, you go to certain networks for certain pro types of programming. Um, you may go to an independent radio station for what you believe to be something a little bit more objective or less less noisy or less in-your-face or sensational media. Um, you know, if you listen, if you enjoy classical music, you're not going to find it on a rock and roll station. It, it would be a mistake to look for it there. So, it's, yeah, the grass is always greener, you know, no matter what. Right, right, right. So it, it, I think it's very interesting that you came to radio later on. Uh, you started radio at age 50. You had a, uh, a slot on, on the college radio station at WHCS at Hunter right. College in uh, in new york new york how did this come about how did you say oh my gosh i'm gonna do radio now it's it's a little bit embarrassing um <laughs> the backstory i thought i had graduated 1985 is when i should have graduated from hunter college um i believe that i had graduated i felt that i required fulfilled all my requirements at least on my tally sheet and the company i was working for was in the in uh, hospitality industry the hotel was on strike and there was no way I was going to make graduation, so I didn't apply for graduation, and I thought it was kind of stupid to apply to get out. So I hadn't fulfilled all my distribution requirements or my grade, my 
my uh, degree requirements. But I thought I graduated, moved a couple times, never got my diploma, was never asked to produce it. So I stopped worrying about it and just kind of got on with my career. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, you know what they say, hire a teenager, they know everything and they'll work for less. So I was a typical person, mid twenties. I was a genius in my own mind. I knew everything and I would never make that mistake. The banking industry began to collapse and it was an industry that I was involved in. And I had enjoyed teaching chess uh, as a volunteer and it began to develop some, some income that way. And I thought, well, maybe I should become a substitute teacher and see how I like this and maybe apply for my teaching certificate because I really enjoy the, the, the teaching end of it, the classroom end of it. But, you know, it's like everything else. With, with any fun job requires responsibilities where the responsibility is going to outweigh the fun of the job. Let me just try it out and see how it goes. So I called the local school board. They said, sure, not a problem. Just send us a copy of your transcript and your diploma and we'll get back to you. So I thought, I have never seen my diploma. I called the school and they said, <laughs> yeah. um, we can send you your transcript. That's not a problem. We can do it over the phone by credit card. Give us your credit card number. It's $5. We'll send you the transcript. But the diploma, you didn't get. And I said, okay, that's not really very funny. And they said, this is not comedy. This is not meant to be funny. You didn't, you didn't graduate. I said, come on, this really? Is there, some, is there somebody I can talk to? You know, can I... Can I pay a fee? Can I do some, you know, uh, life experience credits? Can I do some online stuff? And they said, no, you have to fulfill your obligation at this institution if you want us to give you our credentials. And I thought, oh man, maybe there's somebody I can talk to. So I went into the school and talked to anybody who would listen to me. And they all said, "Uh uh no. Fast forward, applied to school, got in. I was walking by the radio station at the college and I thought, you know something? I was here 25 years ago and I didn't believe that I had anything to say. And I'm thick. I reckon I'm here 25 years later. I'd like to get on radio. I think I got something to say. I think I could have fun doing this and what the heck, let's just ask. So I walked into the, the radio station and they said, you got to fill out an application. I said, okay. So of course, standard questions, name, social security number, student ID number, all the rest of the stuff. And the last question, why do you want to be on the air? So I wrote, 25 years ago, I was here and I didn't think I had anything to say. I'm here 25 years later and I think I've got something to say and, and I think I would enjoy this and be good at it. And if you make me wait another 25 years, I'll be dead and this will all be on you. <laughs> nice. I got a phone call the next day and said, I think you better come in and talk to us. So I was afraid I was going to meet the dean of students or something, you know, pretty important. And they said, uh, about this last question. So I told them the whole story. They thought it was pretty entertaining. Got on the air, did a, a semester um, at Hunter College and enjoyed it. It was a one hour show. I named it Music My Mother Would Not Like. It went out on the internet. I think on a big day, I had 50 listeners because... The kid before me's parents told all their friends to listen to hit their show, and those people left the, the uh, their computers on. So I think I got 50 hits that day, um, where 13 or 14 was was a good day at the war. Yeah. And then um, fast forwarding, got involved in community radio in Bridgeport, Connecticut, volunteered, and found my way to to the microphone, and really have been at it ever since. I do two shows in Rockland, Maine on um, WRFR, also an independent low-power radio station, and uh, the station in Bridgeport I was on for about 11 years and did my last show 
July 30th of this calendar year where I finally said, you know, I've got to hang it up. I've got to, I don't live in Bridgeport. I can't really talk about um, what's going on. The type of programming I enjoy doing just doesn't work remotely. I can't bring yeah. people into my, my home studio and interview them and have them perform in Connecticut that night. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. Mm. And it wasn't fair. I was taking up the space of somebody else that lived in the area that had volunteered that really deserved a slot. And it was a great slot. I worked from one to four, the second, fourth, and fifth Friday. And man, I loved it. I was the mayor from one to four and I dug it. But um, that was how it, how it all began. Were you, all, were you always live on those slots or were some of those pre-recorded? The, um, the programming up in Rockland, Maine, uh, I have a cousin that does a program on Sunday nights from 8 to 10 called The Vinyl Hour from 8 to 10, one hour. It started as yeah. one hour and he kept the show, the name the same and he expanded it. And then I got involved in the Hunter College Radio um, and said, can I come up and see you and can I sit in and I'd love to do a show and kind of big dealed my way in and filled in for about an hour. And it was, it was really wonderful to go out on, you know, to be in the studio with somebody and go out on the air. And, and um, it sort of morphed into sending up one-hour segments that he would plug in. And it, it sort of morphed into that way. And I finally got my own show and expanded that to two hours and then asked if I could do some more singer-songwriter folk music after that show, like from midnight to 2 a.m. And the program director said, what about 9 to 11 on Sunday? I thought, oh, man, that's a good one. So I started doing that for about six or seven years. I think I've had that show going, about 300 episodes, all wow. done remotely. Every once in a while, I'm in, I'm in Rockland, and I will go in and do the show live. Uh, but it's kind of weird. And um, But the radio programming here in, in Asheville that I'm now on is now live. We're all able to get back into the studio. Everybody's been vaxxed up and masked up, and they, they keep pretty strict protocols in, in Asheville. Um, but doing the show live at PKN was a gas. It was it was a gas. It was a big studio, a lot of space, brought in all kinds of bands. I had Robin Hitchcock sitting in, Chris Smithers sat in, Band of Heathens, um, Poor Man's Whiskey was a regular. Willie Nile came up with his bass player. They drove up from Brooklyn and sat in for, he said, a couple of minutes and two hours later I had to throw him out because um, my show was ending I'd have kept him there all yeah. day uh, so I've been I was really lucky Fairfield and Bridgeport were great crossroads for for music um, and now with a two-hour show I'm hoping to expand it a little bit later on in the week and do have musicians that are touring through the area come in because uh, I think it's you know if you if you're unfamiliar with an artist and they're coming to town I mean there's still a couple of seats and you get to get to hear them, you get to know them, you think, wow, this guy, I like their music. They're, they're kind of interesting. Um, maybe I'd like to see them live. And you go and you buy a ticket, and then you too become a fan. But for me, live radio, it was the deal. It was the real deal. And it, it I, you know, I hate to sound trite, but I still get a stupid expression on my face when the house lights start dimming. And you get excited, you know, about what's this guy going to play? What's it going to be like? What's it, what are they going to sing? Who's in the band tonight? You know the answers to most of the questions. And there's always a couple of songs you don't hear or a couple of new ones that they run by you. But I've been going to a lot of shows for a long, long time. And the same thing. The house lights start to set. Is their announcer going to come on? Is it going to be over the PA? Useless, trivial questions. Um, what's the ticket look like? What's, you know, Do you have, still have the stub? Um, Ever since it began, ever since I caught the bug, 
as a as a sixteen year old. I've never lost it. Live music is big show, small show. Some of my favorite shows have been very intimate, under attended, and some have been you know epic concerts. And and who knows what it, what it is that makes a show a great show at that particular moment. But yeah, but it is, and I dig it. And you're talking about bringing people in. Um, mm-hmm. w- one of the things you said when we were exchanging emails was that you believe that things sound better when you know the person. Yeah. So, I think that if... Maybe it's not fair. I, I found myself liking music a little bit more than I did like it once I got to know the artist or once I got to know the artist... Um, almost no matter what they send me, I mean, all, all things equal, I, yeah. would, I would have a listen to. Because I, I liked them, I respected them, I enjoyed what their journey was all about, how they came to, to music. And, and, you know, I can't sing a note. I, I live in an apartment complex. If I start singing in the shower, everybody's water goes cold. Everybody, <laughs> not just mine, everybody. Yeah. In the whole complex, and there's, there's yeah. like 500 units. Um, I can't play instruments. I can't read music. I just have such respect and, and admiration and adoration for people that can put it all out there, expose themselves, their vulnerability, to go on stage, to capture the attention, to take people someplace else for 90 minutes, to um, not to say you have no more problems because the problems will be there when you get outside that they're not going to run away, but at least for 90 minutes, you can share a common experience with maybe who's somebody who's going through the same problems you are different problems. And for 90 minutes, you can have a little bit of solace, a little bit of forgetting about your problems just for a little bit. And then maybe you approach them from a different angle. And, and also that's part of what radio is. Maybe I can take somebody away from their pain, their angst, their worries, their concerns, especially during pandemic when you can't really interact the way you used to be able to. You don't see your colleagues at work. You don't see family members as much. Um, so for me, a big part of it is the personal connection with the artist. Do I, do I, do I like them as a human being? Do I enjoy their, their, their company, their personality? Um, I wouldn't put anybody in the studio that I, that I didn't want to spend time with or I, I thought it was a, a career builder or something along those lines. I think that's just kind of ingenuous and, and certainly um, fraudulent. To, but, and sometimes you do somebody a favor. Somebody says, can you do me a favor? Can you put this guy on the stage? Ticket sales aren't going that well or they're not where we'd like them to be or whatever. And you say, sure, because you asked, I'm, I'm happy to accommodate. And yeah. you, you find the best that they've got and try to bring them along. Or sometimes you have someone in the studio and, and things are just not gelling. And you say, I've got, your, I've got your record here. Let's pick a track. Why don't you pick a track? Put in a track. You turn off the microphone and say, hey, look, man, this is just not happening. We've got to find a common thing we can talk about. Your PR person said, you're the chatterbox in the group. You're the guy to talk to. And we've got to have something to talk about. We've got to make this interesting. And yeah. you'll sell some tickets. And so that is a, a big part of it. Um, liking people just makes it a lot more fun. I don't like to work with people that I don't like. Um, sure. It's just not as much fun. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think most of us would. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything we left? I, I'm and if I'm sure, I'm sure we left out plenty, right? We could talk all afternoon. But is there anything that we left out that, that, uh, that you wanted me to mention? You know, I think it's... 
I think we're experiencing tough times for for everybody um, on on all sides of the arts and entertainment equations. <clears throat> the audience members, the performers, the business people that have to turn a profit because without it, there's no place to perform. <clears throat> I've seen marvelous participation from everybody, everybody working towards the middle the last two years. And it's, it's inspiring because it's a very competitive business. And while I don't believe that we can establish quotas for the arts, I think it's important that everybody gets a shot. And maybe that's really the best part of community radio, that more people can have an opportunity for a shot you, you got to be good. You know, I mean, you're asking someone to buy a ticket to something that is unknown. Nobody knows what the performance is going to be like. And everybody does have a bad day. But there's a, there's a sense of responsibility. You've sold something and you have to deliver. And I've seen enormous cooperation. Um, artists working together that might otherwise not to because the tour schedules don't permit. Just because of opportunities don't crisscross. Um, we've been very lucky. You know, Louise and I have been at in the music industry one way or the other for forever. We we both have are passionate about what we do, and we've been very lucky to click into some good friends and build on those relationships. And um, you know, I mean, I would on a bet I probably would never have gotten to know you had it not been for opportunity and, and preparation crisscrossing. So we said, listen to this, we listen to it. You said, hey, I'm gonna be in Asheville, I'm going to a ball game. We said, hey, after the game, let's go to the guitar bar. It's a really rocking, cool place. Uh, yeah. I think you dig it. And you did and we did and, and it was fun and you stayed over and who knows? Next time yeah. you're passing through, maybe you'll stay over again. That'd be great, that'd be great. Well, thanks for thanks so much for taking the time and sharing your knowledge and uh, chatting with me about uh, about life and radio. Thank you. It's 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 a real privilege. I, you know, again, I looked through the roster of people that you have hosted, and it's it's pretty impressive. And um, to be part of that list is is humbling. So thank you. I appreciate. Thanks to your listeners for still listening. I hope they still are, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> I hope this is not one of your two listener night evenings. <laughs> hey, great show. I'm still listening. Thanks, Bruce, for coming on. Thanks for taking the time, and thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Have a good one.